About 12 years ago, I received some of the best professional advice that I've ever been given in a single sentence. Keep preaching about God's forgiveness. It's easy to say that after a song like that. At the time I received that uh, advice, I'd only been a pastor for just a few years. Uh, One Sunday, I had preached about a story that Jesus told in which he pictured God as a king who forgave an impossible debt because of the compassion that he had for one who owed him that which he could never pay back. Does some of you know that story? I asked everyone present on that morning to picture their own failures and faults, all of their guilt, to imagine in their own minds that long line of mistakes those things for which they felt guilty and even ashamed, not to push them down, but to let those failures of theirs, their sin, come into their mind as we all gather together on that morning. Uh, Back in those days, the community that I preached to was comprised of people who were all younger than I was. It was mostly high school students and young adults. On that morning, there was just one exception. There was a a woman in the very back who had been brought by her great-granddaughter to church that Sunday. She was in the back and everybody else was listening as I asked them to imagine their guilt. I happened to know, because I I knew those young people personally, that a lot of them struggled with guilt and shame. They told me their stories. They were not good kids. And so as I asked them to picture themselves, and I made it personal, personal, when I asked them to picture themselves standing before God, aware of all of their guilt, I could see that some of them were deeply moved, that they were carrying burdens as I spoke of it. I wonder if you would picture just for a moment uh, your own guilt. Uh, For some of you, it's all too easy. For others, that's a new concept. But, But for those of you who can picture it, would you imagine that? That morning, as I had that gathering, and I myself was there too because I carry guilt, as I had them in their minds standing before God, exposed in all of their guilt, I got the privilege, and it's one of my favorite things in the world to do, to tell them that as God looked upon them, instead of being angry and bitter toward them, that he looked upon them with fatherly love and compassion that was deeper than the ocean and higher than the sky. That he didn't want to push them away, but as we come and trust Jesus, that he carries us right up to the Father, and there we, st- we stand broken before one who loves us with a-, a love that is infinite, beyond what we could possibly imagine and that we don't need to carry any guilt or grief or shame anymore because God's love is for us. It cleanses us. It washes all of that guilt away, and we are free and able to be completely and totally joy-filled. It was a good morning for me and for a lot of the people gathered. And when I finished, when I got done that morning and I felt good, I was sort of floating, and a number of young people came up to speak with me afterward. And I knew they were going to tell me that they'd been freed of some things, and I was thankful for that. But then right in the back, was that woman. She also came to speak, and she waited until everyone else was gone. When all those young people had gone, she stood right face to face with me, and she took my hand in hers. And she looked at me, and she said, and very sincerely, this morning you preached on my favorite subject of all. Thank you so much. You have no idea how meaningful it was to me. And I said to her, you're welcome, 
And then I wanted to know why. So I said, what is it about forgiveness that makes it so meaningful to you? She thought. And then she looked at me and said, do you know how old I am? That was a very unfair question. <laughs> I, I said, uh, 49. <laughs> she said, in two years, I'll be 100 years old. And then she said this, there is nothing that I like hearing about more than forgiveness because every year that passes, I know more how much I need God's forgiveness. She didn't look particularly bad. <laughs> and then she added, and the more joy it brings me to remember that he forgives me. And then she said that advice. Keep preaching about God's forgiveness. So here we go. Uh, last week, Clay preached about communion, and some of you are here. This week, I'm going to talk about baptism. These two are practices. They're traditions of the Christian community, both of which, at their root, are about God's forgiveness. Both of which are signs and pictures outwardly of the grace of God which comes to give us, all of us, exactly what we need, which is to be forgiven. And here's why we need it. Because when we carry around guilt and shame, to our own detriment, we stay away from the one source of true life, the source of love that comes to us in God and in grace comes to us in Jesus Christ to free us, to bring us close, and give us the life we were made for. And both communion and baptism signify that. And this morning, I'm going to talk about baptism. And here's how we're going to do it. I am going to bring us to the very same table that we considered last week. Uh, last week, Paul uh, Clay did a great job in teaching us about the Passover celebration. And that story of Jesus' meal with his followers at that table, uh, which is told in all four Gospels, is told in a unique way in the Gospel of John. And when John tells that story, there's a detail that he includes which points to baptism. And here's what I hope for this morning, and I want to be very clear before we get into the story. Here's what it is. Uh, that those of you who are here and have been baptized... And many of you have been, and you have behind you the beginning of your faith, and I meet you this morning on your road of faith. You're already walking on that path. For you, here's my hope, that you will be renewed in, in, in your joy and freedom that has come as God has forgiven you, that you will recall your own baptism, and that will bring you freedom. That's my hope for you. And then maybe there are some in here who've not been baptized, and here's my hope for you, that this time together might be something that God uses to push you toward that step of faith, to choose to be baptized and accept and receive his forgiveness. All right, so with that in mind here, I want you to see how John sets the picture up, the scene, which we'll consider together, of Jesus Passover celebration with his followers. It's in the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. I want to just read the setting for you and then we'll talk about it a bit and get it in our minds. If we look at chapter 13, verse 1, here's how John describes and sets up the scene. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. 
John sets up the scene of the Last Supper in a very particular way on purpose because he wants us to have two things in mind before we see what happens. And I want you to consider these two things. First, he tells us that Jesus knows at this point that his hour has come to depart from the world. And you all know what that means. It's time for him to face his own death. At that meal, Jesus sits with his friends knowing that it will be the last meal that he celebrates. And very few of us get that, uh, that kind of opportunity to know when the end is for us. But in this moment, the meal that we will see comes when Jesus knows that his death is coming. That's the first thing. And then the second thing which John says, which is crucial, is that Jesus had loved his own who were in the world and he loved them to the very end. That means what John will show us at this meal is not only the meal that a man who is about to die celebrates with his friends, but a meal which is what love looks like. Jesus loved his followers. He loved them deeply. And John tells us here that this meal is going to show us what love looks like. Love to the very end. That is what it looks like when one loves another utterly, completely, and totally. Those followers of Jesus, they were with him because they knew that he loved them. And here we're going to see what love looks like when it's complete. And now in order to see it, what I'm going to ask you to do is to use your imagination with me. And here's what I'd like. I'd like you as much as possible to picture yourself at that meal with Jesus and his followers. For some of you, it's very easy. For others of you, this might be a new thing. But imagine if you would that you were at a meal with a man who knew it was his last and who was going to love you uniquely in that moment. And to help you, I have a painting here of the Last Supper. Many of you will know da Vinci's painting. It's one of the most famous paintings in the entire world. This is not a painting by da Vinci, but it's a picture that is meant to capture something unique about that meal. Look at it for a moment. Do you notice that the source of light comes from the man there in the center, from Jesus? This is a a beautiful depiction of a truth that is deep beneath what's actually happening, and that is that this man, Jesus, is bringing light into the darkness. And this artist wants those who would observe this painting to see the light that is coming from Jesus at this moment in the meal. There are so many rich things happening at the Passover. Let me picture them for you. They're not all there in the painting, but if you would use your imagination with me for a moment and picture this, you're there at the table, reclining with your friends and companions, the ones who you had followed Jesus with. Your master and teacher there, Jesus, is at the head of the table. And set before him, there's the bread and the cup. That, that is pictured here. The bread which is meant to remind you of how the people of God generations earlier had to flee quickly from oppression in Egypt. You see the bread there and remember it. There are the cups that are set out. Each one of them is significant in its own way. When, when your master's hands touch that cup, you are moved in your heart to see Jesus reenacting this celebration of freedom. There are herbs and there are, there's water and vinegar. Those, will, those herbs will be dipped and tasted. You know that's coming. And there in the center of the table, there's the paschal lamb, a lamb which has been slaughtered. And you know that it's there on the table in front of you and your friends to remind you of how God had delivered his people long ago. The blood of the lamb, 
which was spread on the doorposts, made it so when the angel of death came, it passed over those people who were God's people, who were covered by the blood of the lamb and saved by it. If this is new for you and it's confusing, I'll just ask you, go and listen to Clay's sermon from last week. Do it. Go to the website and listen and learn there. Clay did a great job teaching about all of this symbolism. But for now, there you are at this table. Everything is prepared. And it's moving because you see that there the lamb whose blood had been spilled is meant to remind you that God had freed you by the blood of the lamb. Everything is right. But then there's one thing that's missing and it's significant. Over there in the corner of the room, there's a stone jar filled with water. And beside it, there's a basin which is empty. And beside that, a towel. And that towel is meant to be wrapped around the waist of a slave who in this moment, for some reason, is not present. And you see, that towel is meant to be dipped in water and wash your feet and everyone's feet around the table. Because for this holy meal, it's not a good thing to have feet which are as dirty as your feet and everyone else's would have been. You're wearing sandals. This is pre-Birkenstock, but they kind of look like that. You've walked a long way to get to that meal, and you walked in the heat, and the dust has gotten on your feet and made them very dirty. And worse than that, you had to come through the city of Jerusalem where there is no, there's no sewers. And so your feet are nasty. Like, they're bad. And as you sit around that table, you and everyone else notices that there's no slave present, and that's a problem, and here's why. Because someone has to get up and wash everyone's feet before they partake of this holy meal. And you know what you are thinking? It's what every disciple in that moment would be thinking. You are thinking, someone better get up and wash my feet, and it's not going to be me, right? Are you thinking that? Because you're looking around, and you're thinking, I may be lower than some people here, but I'm not the lowest. And the reason I know that that's what the disciples are thinking, it's not because uh, John writes that in the Bible, but because that's how real people think. I'm right, aren't I? Don't you, don't you know that? I, I remember as a kid, one of my chores was to clean up after dinner. My brother and I would sit there. As soon as the meal got close to an end, I would start thinking, somebody's got to clean up this mess and it's not going to be me, and I actually had a strategy for this, I began to time my use of the bathroom with the end of the meal. I would grip my stomach and say, oh, right before it was done, I think I, go, I think I need to go to the bathroom. You can't argue with Mother Nature. I was out of there, and I would sit until the whole meal was done, and then when I came out, oh, I'll take care of it next time, and you know what happened next time. This is the way we live as people. We don't want to take responsibility for messes. Am I right? And it doesn't just happen around the dinner table. And that would be one thing if that's the only place where it happened. But the truth is, all over our lives, this tendency to not want to take responsibility for the low tasks, for wanting someone else to be responsible for mistakes and messes, for looking for every reason in the world we can find to make ourselves look right and everyone else look wrong, for always trying to blame someone else for the mistakes around us. This happens, doesn't it? All of that comes from the same place. It comes from the place in me and in you and in all of us which turns inward and wants to be the center of the universe, the most important person in the world, the one who's higher than other people around, the one who's okay because of how good I make myself. I know this tendency doesn't just make people avoid cleaning the dishes. 
It divides husbands from wives and families from each other. It drives parents and children away. It makes it difficult for me to be in good relationships with all the people around me. And I move forward in life in this way and it ruins my relationships with my neighbors, my friends in church, with the people that are in my extended family, with my community. And you could even say the mess in the world today in our own country and in the globe all around us at heart is about the tendency of every man and every woman to not want to take responsibility for anyone's mess and instead to be turned in on ourselves and to sit at a table like the Last Supper, and say, someone else better get up and wash my feet. It's not going to be me. Now in this moment, in this moment where we have to speculate what's in the minds of those disciples, and I think we're pretty right, we actually don't have to guess what's in Jesus' mind because he's also at that table. Now you get this. He's there also and he's sitting around with all of his friends, the ones that he's given his life for over these last years. And they're not one of them. Not one of them is getting up to do what they should have done. And he's sitting there, and John tells us exactly what is in his mind. Look at verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, that means that in this moment, Jesus is aware of the fact that he is the one in whose hands God has put everything. That means he doesn't have to wonder if anyone at the table is lower than him. He knows that he's higher than everyone who has ever been. And whatever you think about Jesus, you must see this to grasp what this story tells us. And that is that Jesus in this moment is aware of the fact that he is almighty Jesus, that he has all authority in heaven and on earth. He knows that. He's thinking about it while no one is getting up. And he also is thinking about the fact that he had come from God and was going to God. Again in his mind is the truth that he's about to die. And that means that when everyone else looks at that lamb there, the one that had been slaughtered and whose blood in the past had saved the people from death, Jesus sees that not only as a reminder of the past, but in this moment, he sees that lamb and he thinks about what's coming. Because Jesus knows that his blood is going to be spilled in a matter of hours, really. And when he sees that lamb, you know what he thinks of? That's me. This is remarkable. In the Gospel of John, the first time that Jesus appears on the scene, there's a character who speaks of him and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is the first sentence that is spoken about Jesus when he appears in this gospel, the gospel of John. And so there he is, Jesus, thinking that he has all the power that anyone could ever have and he's looking at that Lamb and knowing that his blood is about to be spilled, look at what he does with that knowledge. This is verse four. Jesus got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. Now would you put yourself in, in the position of those disciples for a moment and imagine this? There is the one person at the table that you are confident is the one who is the highest. And then you watch him stand up. 
And you watch him in all humility walk over to that corner where the slave's towel is and and you watch him take off his outer robe and then grab that towel and begin to tie it around his own waist. What would be happening inside of you in that moment? I know what would be happening inside of me. I can't believe I didn't get up first. And now you watch him as he pours the water into the basin and now he comes over and begins to wash the dirt away from your feet. He is, in this moment, he is your master and you know it. And he is the one in whom God has put all authority on heaven and earth and he is acting like a slave right there. What would you do? If you look at verse six, here's what happened. Look, he came to Simon Peter. Peter is one of the disciples who is remarkable in, in his humanity. If you read any one of the gospels and read through and watch how Peter behaves over and over again, it's amazing. He's so human. His name was Simon and Jesus had changed it to Peter, which means rock. But when he came to Simon Peter, look what happens. Who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? That's his way of saying, no, no, never. How, how could you? I should have been the one who got up and washed your feet. He resists because in this moment, he has a new reason to feel like a failure. He has yet another reason to feel guilt and shame. He has one more thing to add on his list of all of those bad things which have kept him away from God. Here, put this story aside for a moment. And would you consider your own list? And I know that some of you don't have a list. And that's, that's okay. You're here and you've never thought of yourself as in need of anything from God. You don't need his grace. Okay. Uh, you need to be forgiven. And, and you need uh, to consider that. But for the rest of us who have a list, would you imagine that moment where, where your master comes? Would it be difficult for you to let him wash your feet? Would it? I have some friends who would never accept it. They can accept God's grace for everyone else's sins, but not their own. And you know what? I'm gonna tell you this. I myself have struggled with that at times. To look at my own self and to be able to preach with joy about God's grace for others. And sometimes it's hard for me to even imagine if I put myself at that table like Peter, I would have said, are you going to wash my feet? And look how Jesus responds. This is one of my favorite. Can you tell I like this story? <laughs> it's one of my all-time favorites, it is. And I'll tell you why. There are so many religious systems which picture God as this omnipotent power up there who, who rules through divine authority and is always so strong and, and austere, and, and Christian faith says Jesus Christ is God himself. The Gospel of John begins with the words, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word, the word was God. Jesus Christ was in the beginning and he became flesh and lived among us. And this is a picture of the Christian God. He is on his knees acting like a servant for those who haven't yet learned to really know their need for his grace. Isn't that magnificent? I mean, my goodness, I like it. And I like it because I need it. And what Jesus says to Peter in verse seven is this. Look at, look at the answer. Jesus answered, and this is so magnificent. You do not know what I am doing, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, you'll never wash my feet. And that response is yet another example of the fact that he doesn't yet understand what Jesus is doing and Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. You have no share with me. Now listen, I want to make this extremely clear. What Jesus wants, what God wants, is for all of us to have a share with him. That's what he wants. 
And he doesn't want that for people who are good enough, who've made themselves right, who've behaved properly, who believe the right things, who hold the right doctrine. Nonsense. What God wants is for all of his people, and that is all of those who he's made in his image. He wants us all to have a part of him, a share with him. He wants us to be close to him because he loves us. you, You remember what this picture is about, right? It's about love, what love looks like when love comes and loves all the way to the end. And what Jesus wants in this moment is for Peter and for all of those disciples and for all of us to have a share with him. And, and what, what he's doing, which Peter doesn't understand yet, the reason Jesus says, you do not know what I am doing is because Peter believes what Jesus is doing is humiliating himself by washing dirt off of his feet. And he is doing that. But what Jesus is really doing is pointing ahead to what he's going to do on the cross, which is to wash away the filth from Peter's soul with his blood. Whew. <laughs> I, you know, when I finished that, I pictured you all yelling, hallelujah. <laughs> I know that's not us, it's fine. <laughs> Peter thinks that Jesus is humbling himself by cleaning off his feet, and he is. But what Jesus is really doing in this moment is showing him that he's about to clean the guilt from his heart, which Peter cannot clean from his own heart. He can't. And, and neither can any one of those disciples. And all of them, all of them emphatically are, are, are mistaken men. All of those who come along with Jesus are men and women who need grace. And so are you. And you can't clean your own heart off. It's a stain that doesn't come out. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, with his physical act of cleansing, what he's about to do spiritually which is to make Peter and the rest clean. They don't see it yet. We know they understood it later. Uh, Look at this passage. This is a passage that was written by one of the men who was there at that table that night. John would write later on when he got his own book published in the New Testament in his first letter, 1 John. He would write in verse 7 of the first chapter, the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, cleanses us from all sin. He got it. He knew that as the master washed away the dirt with the water, that it was a picture of what Jesus would do on the cross. And that is to shed his blood to cleanse us from all sin. And, and I'm telling you what, no matter how stained you are this morning, and if you're not a person who sees yourself as stained, maybe there will be a day when you do. And I'll tell you, this says right here, there is no stain which the blood of Jesus cannot and will not fully wash away so that you are made brand new, clean, and renewed completely. And the blood of Jesus, which is a theme in the New Testament, remarkably, it frees us from all unrighteousness. It gives us new life. It brings those who are far away from God near again. And it restores us to the place where we need to be to have the life that we were made for. And look, here, here's another passage in which the blood is mentioned. This is actually written by Peter, the one whom Jesus said, you do not know what I'm doing yet. In his own words, this is 1.18 of 1 Peter. You were ransomed. And ransomed means set free when someone came and gave the kind of resource that needed to be given to free you, which you didn't have yourself. You were ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. And then he adds, look at this, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. That means that by the time he wrote his letter, Peter finally understood what Jesus had done that night. And he understood it. This is so magnificent to me. He understood it in terms of the washing away, and he understood it in terms of the lamb that was there on the table, 
and in terms of his own master, Jesus, who like a lamb without blemish, chose freely to go to the cross so that his blood would be spilled so that we could be redeemed. And now I said we on purpose. And, and, and here, here, this is where I want this to go. Whatever it is that causes you to hide before the thought of God, whatever it is, God knows it fully. And what Jesus did here is what he invites each one of us, each one of us, to experience completely. Uh, look, look again at the table at what he says. He says it very plainly. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And that's not just true for Peter and the rest of them, but for us too. And here it is. If you would in your own heart, with all of its guilt, if you would simply picture yourself sitting beside him at that table, you are completely free to let him wash you. You are. And the motivation for him is one single thing. It's love. And this is the other thing about Christian faith that moves me so much. It's a religion that says at the heart of it that God is love. And that is personal. That means there's no guilt or shame that you could carry into this place which would drive Jesus away from your side. But instead he would sit beside you with love and say, let me take your feet in my hands and cleanse them. Let me take your heart in my hands and wash away all the guilt because you are my beloved daughter. You are my beloved son. And here it is, would you let him do it? So some of you, Here's where we get to baptism. Some of you long ago have been baptized and, and you've been a person of faith. You've been someone who accepts God's grace and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Here's what I want for you this morning on this day. And it's really what I want for now and for the rest of this beautiful Sunday. It is that you would be renewed in the joy of your salvation. That you would let your heart delight in it. That you would remember the, the great joy of having been a person, not who's perfect, but who's forgiven. And that, that, that joy would ooze out of you today that you'd be nice to people who are rotten because of it. I'm serious, that you in your own heart would be free of the resentment that you feel toward people who have wronged you because you're able to see yourself as a forgiven man or a forgiven woman. And then that you would remember your own baptism and you would say, thank God that, that God cleansed me and has made me new. I am a glad person. I'd like that. I'd love it if you were glad for today because of it. That's for you. Now, for those of you who have not been baptized or, or who have never stepped forward and, say, and said, I choose, I want God's grace, which has come inward and done that inward cleansing of my heart, I want to say to the people around me that I accept it and I want to show it by allowing myself to symbolically be washed outward. And when we practice baptism here, it won't be uh, just your feet, it will be your whole self. And that is meant very simply. It's very, very simply meant to be a picture, an outward expression, a beautiful choice on the part of a man or woman which corresponds outwardly with that inward grace of God's cleansing through the blood of Christ. That is an invitation which I extend to all of you. I mentioned this two weeks ago when I preached, again about Peter. Do you remember when I talked about Peter stepping out of the boat? I said, what's Jesus calling you to? There were two people uh, who since then talked to me and said, I think he's calling me to be baptized. Yeah. Uh, that's an invitation that's out there again for you. It is. It's not an invitation that principally or first of all comes from me or for any from any church or from any religious institution. That's not what it is. 
If it is for you what it is meant to be, it's an invitation from the king of love, Jesus, who beckons to you and says, come, sit with me and let me cleanse you so that you are free and you no longer need to carry that guilt or shame and that together we can go into the future rejoicing. And so listen now, if you would respond to that invitation, here's all you need to do. Uh, Reach out to me uh, or to Clay and you can talk to us in person or you can send us an email and say that is something that I want. If you're not sure but you want to talk about it, you can do that with me as well. I've spoken week after week of the great joy that I have when I get to meet with people from Renaissance outside of this space. It happened again last week and it was great. And I'd love to have that freedom in the week ahead. Uh, This is the last word that I want to say. The gift of communion and the gift of baptism is a gift that comes from one place and it is God's love. And his love is what is beneath his forgiveness. And today... Today, I want, very simply, to honor that great-grandmother who gave me that wonderful advice. Keep preaching about God's forgiveness. Now, would you join me in prayer, and then we're going to sing together. Would you do that? Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for this magnificent truth that when the blood of Christ was spilled, it was a fountain that was given to clean us from all of our unrighteousness, uh, to set us free. I thank you that this morning we had the chance to picture ourselves at that table and to imagine Jesus himself cleansing us. I pray that each one of us who bears guilt would freely see ourselves there with Christ and that we would accept your gift of cleansing and that we would be free. I pray that for this day ahead of us, we would be people who are glad in that freedom that we would rejoice in in the salvation which has come to us as a gift. For those who are on that journey and not yet sure, I pray very simply that this time together would be your way of helping them move forward a bit more. I pray that all of us in this place, all of us, would become people of grace, that we would be very content with each person being just where you have them, but also that we would be open to your using us to help bring people further along. We want to be a community that grows as people come to see you and grow in faith in relationship to you. And so we ask that you would help us see in our hearts the truth that we've heard in our ears as we spent time with the story this morning. And I pray for this in Jesus' name.